You're listening to the latest sermon from Our Saviour Lutheran Church in Fareham. For more information about Our Saviour Lutheran Church, visit our website at www.oslc.org.uk. oslc.org.uk. May God bless you richly through his word. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. In the service of Matins, we sing the psalm that we sang after our first reading today, Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, etc. But if you turn to the setting of Matins in Lutheran service book, you will say that it will say it says as a reference Psalm 95 verses 1 to 7, which implies quite correctly that they have not given us the whole psalm. Now, it, as it happens, Psalm 95 was always sung in Matins for as long as we know pretty much, and until fairly recently, it was always sung in full. But a couple of centuries ago, somebody had the bright idea, not in the Lutheran church, but somewhere else, uh, I shan't name any names, that we really we should stop at the, uh, near the end of verse 7, because it's such a joyful psalm, psalm of praise, and it ends with these wonderful words, he is our God and we are his, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Who would want to add anything more to that? Especially if what comes after that is, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the dead Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that they had seen my work. For forty years I loathe that generation, has said. They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here endeth the psalm on a bit of a damper. And so... Those last verses were dropped, and when the Lutheran Church in the United States switched to English, they simply followed suit, and so ever since then, in the Lutheran Church, those verses have not been sung at Matins. But the funny thing about that psalm is that it's one of the most frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament, but the only verses that are ever quoted in the New Testament are the verses that we don't sing in Matins. So the bit that we think aren't quite fit for singing on a, on a, uh, on a morning is the bit that the New Testament actually quotes. And there's a, a, a very significant uh, chunk of the early part of the letter to the Hebrews is, in fact, commentary on that, on that part of that psalm. And so those of you who've ever joined online matins uh, on YouTube since, uh, since the uh, lockdown a few years ago will have noticed that um, in, in, the, in the online matins from our Saviour Lutheran Church, the whole psalm is sung every time, because it's a very fine psalm indeed. And today we heard the reading on which those verses are based, from Exodus 17, Meribah and Massa. Meribah meaning testing, Massa meaning quarreling. The people of Israel quarreled with God. They tested God. And here, 
as we heard also in our epistle reading, is first of all an uh, extraordinarily important lesson for all God's people. In chapter 17 of Exodus, the following things have already taken place. Moses has been born and rescued. He has grown up. He has uh, escaped to Midian. He has met God at the burning bush, has returned to Egypt, has declared God's word and will to Pharaoh. The ten plagues have taken place. The angel of death has passed past over the houses of the Israelites so that none of their firstborn died when all the firstborn in Egypt died. The people of Egypt have loaded them with treasures just to encourage them to go. They have left, they have got to the Red Sea, they have crossed the Red Sea, the army of Pharaoh has been drowned, they have grumbled for the first time for lack of food, God has given them manna in the wilderness. So far in the story. And now they are running low on drinking water and they say, God brought us here to kill us. After all that, God brought us here to kill us. And they grumble. And Moses is quite sure that if the, the situation doesn't get resolved, they will stone him in anger. They tested God. They quarreled with God. And reading this passage in the comfort uh, of today, we quite rightly shake our heads and say, how could they? God had brought them from a land that was famed for his water, Egypt. Now, Egypt, if you look on a satellite picture of Egypt, it's mostly brownish yellow, mostly desert. But there is a vein, a rich green vein that runs through Egypt, the River Nile. And the River Nile made Egypt, despite the surrounding desert, into the birthplace of one of the great civilizations of the ancient world. And it was, for centuries and centuries, the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. When the city of Rome, for example, grew from a little town into the vast city that it was in the first century, with over a million inhabitants, there was no way that even all of Italy could feed just the city of Rome. So how was it that the Romans did not starve? Egypt was the reason they did not starve. And... So whatever life was like, for the people of Israel, there was never a shortage of water. Not only that, but they lived in the land of Goshen, which is in the delta of the Nile. It's the wettest place in Egypt. They had come from a fertile land with loads of water, and now they were in the Sinai wilderness. And having been there, I can assure you, the Sinai wilderness is a bleak old place. Rocky and dry, and very little grows there. Very little indeed. And so when you get to Horeb, which is thought to be one side of Mount Sinai. When they got to that place, and again, you can go, when you go home, look it up on the internet, what they came to was a place that was basically a rocky mountain rising out of a rocky ground. There is no water there. Nothing grows there. And if you run out of drinking water there, you are in trouble. And what we discover is that the people of Israel were just like us. They, had, they could see about as far as they could imagine, which is a little bit just beyond their own hand. And they very quickly forgot the past in the present. 
I once heard a claim, which I'm pretty sure is an urban myth, but it's a good, good urban myth, is that somebody allegedly studied the expression living memory. It's the hottest summer in living memory, the rainiest winter in living memory. Said, how long is living memory? And the claim in the story is that it's three years. Hasn't been this hot for living memory because I forgot what it was like ten years ago. God had brought them out of this fertile place that was full of water, full of food. He promised that he would take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, but all they could see was dry rock and dry stones and emptying water skins. And they had their animals and they had their children and they had themselves to worry about. And in that moment, they forgot not only what God had promised, but everything that he had done. Never mind the plagues. Never mind the Red Sea. Never mind the manna. I'm thirsty. And this shows us just how blinded we are by sin. That we do not have the capacity to see beyond our own horizon. We have no knowledge of God. No perception of God in and of ourselves. Not even when God has demonstrated to us not only his power, but his will to save. And all that remains is the present experience. What about now? What about my needs here and now? And when we put it like that, we discover that the people of Israel weren't that different from us. How easily we get worried or distressed or upset by the present circumstances. Where we know, so well, we know that God has said this, but we know that God has promised, but why do bad things happen to good people? Why would God allow such and such? Where is God's love for me now that? And you can fill in the sentence with whatever circumstances you have experienced where it seems that God is far away and silent. In fact, this is a universal experience of God's people. So much so that there are there is several psalms in the book of Psalms, in the scripture itself, where the psalmist complains of God's silence. Where are you, God? How long, O Lord? And against all of this, Scripture repeatedly draws our attention to what God has done and what God has promised. Water or no water, rocky ground or fertile land, God had led them out of Egypt from slavery. God had performed all those mighty deeds to save his people and he had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. And all of that had been planned and put into effect by God before the people really knew what was going on. I can imagine that most of the Israelites, even while the ten plagues were taking place, were just busy keeping body and soul together, while Moses and Aaron were going in and out of a pharaoh, and God was doing his mighty works. And as the Egyptians were carting out dead frogs out of their houses, 
The people of Israel, many of them, I imagine, were just busy tilling their ground or looking after their children or making bricks for the Egyptians because that's what that day required. And all of a sudden, next thing they knew, they were no longer slaves. God had already done it. They were already fleeing into freedom. And even as they were panicking about the Egyptian armies by the shores of the Red Sea, God was already raising up a wind to divide the sea so that they could walk through on dry ground. God had already purposed this, and in fact, he had purposed this centuries before when he brought Joseph into Egypt. He had already put this whole plan in motion. And their little perspective of what about today, what are, what are we going to drink tomorrow, was just a little infinitesimal dot in the long timeline of God's work, which he had already put into plan and which he had already promised and pledged in his word. And here we see, first of all, the blindness of sinful humanity. But secondly, here we also see God's extraordinary patience, forbearance and grace. God did not send Moses to the people saying, how dare you grumble? Have you not noticed what I've done for you? Instead, he gave them the water that they craved. It's not as if he wasn't going to look after them until they grumbled. But God was gracious enough not even to say that. He didn't send Moses to say, don't you think I know what you need? Don't you think I was going to give you water? But instead, he says to Moses, take with you, pass on before the people in full sight of everyone. Take with you some of the elders of Israel as witnesses. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, the instrument by which God had already done all these wondrous works, and go. And then an extraordinary phrase which is hidden in the English translation said, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. And I checked the in a, uh, in a uh, famous work by a, a renowned scholar of the Old Testament who says that this phrase to stand before somebody is frequently and regularly and normally used to describe the action of a servant. It's the sort of thing that you will do if you are in charge of pouring the drinks. You will stand there before the guests ready to serve. God placed himself in the position of a servant for the people of Israel, ready to serve them with the drink that they required. And God promised that with the staff that he himself had ordained, through the action of the minister that he himself had ordained, Moses, he would give water to the people out of a rock. Grace acted against nature so that water came out of dry rock. And as I said, the rock over there is very dry. Grace went against nature. God's patience went before his self-regard. God's servant, servanthood for his people overrode his rights as a judge. And though the people tested him without faith, and though they quarreled with him without cause, he served them with what they needed so that they might be cared for. And the only rebuke was the name of the place, 
Massa and Meribah, quarrelling and testing, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So in this account, we have a, a grave and important warning to learn from the errors of the Israelites not to despise God, not to test God, not to quarrel with God. On this occasion, God was gracious and he granted to them what they need. But just as this wasn't the first time that they had quarreled with God and tested him, nor was it the last. And in due course, God's patience ran out. And of those people, 600,000 fighting men and their families, two made it into the promised land. Two. And the rest perished in the wilderness. They despised God and God's patience ran out. They had all received the same salvation. They had all received the same promises. As we read in the Catechism this morning, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This very day, countless people walk this earth who have been baptized, who have received the promises of God in holy baptism, who have been united with the death and resurrection of Christ, through water and the word, and who have been given adoption, received adoption from God as his children, but who walk on this earth despising the gift or perhaps even ignorant of it, who no longer live as God's children, who have forsaken his grace and his promises and therefore have lost them. It is not enough to start the race, St. Paul warns us. We need to finish it. It is not enough to leave Egypt. What is needed is arrival in the promised land. It is not enough to have heard and to have and uh, once, but to complete the course in faith. We too have left the bondage and slavery of sin, death and the devil. But we have not yet arrived in the promised land. The kingdom has not yet been fully revealed and we are in the wilderness now. But like the people of Israel, we are surrounded by dangers. Dangers to our soul in the temptations of the world and in the short-sightedness of our sinful nature which tends to forget. Because as other Psalms point out, Psalm 78, Psalm 104 and 5, will remind us that the problem with the people of Israel was not God's power. It was not God's love. It was not that they didn't see or hear. The problem was that they forgot. They kept forgetting. And this forgetfulness led them astray and ultimately led to their destruction. They forgot what God had said. They forgot what God had promised. And so they acted as if it hadn't happened. And so that they would not forget, God gave them not only water, but he gave them water by grace against nature out of a dry rock. And he gave the place a name, 
so that they might remember. Remember the time when you tested God. What did he do? Do you remember the time when he quarreled with him? What did he do? The dry rock gave you water. Do not forget your God and his promises. And to us, greater things have been given. Not only signs that point to the presence of God through earthly gifts, but as Paul points out, the rock that followed them through the wilderness was Christ. We have been given water not simply for earthly thirst, but water that washes away sin. Water that makes us God's children by which we live. We've been baptised into that Christ. But the same God is our God, as was theirs. He still serves us. He is still gracious. He still follows and goes before us. And we have something better than a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. We have God's holy word, which guides us through this life. And when we heed that word, God remains the servant of our servant as he was a servant of Israel. He stands before us in order to serve us with all that we need. Not only for this body and life, but for eternal salvation. Not only to keep us going through this day or through this year or through the rest of our days, but to lead us safely into the promised land. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. How do we believe? How do we receive and maintain this faith? By heeding God's word, by, by beholding his works and by hearing his promises and not forgetting. And this is why scripture says, that we are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You think that the ten plagues are impressive? You think that the crossing of the Red Sea was impressive? You think water out of the rock or manna from heaven was impressive? They are nothing when compared to the birth, death and resurrection of the Son of God in our human flesh. To destroy the powers of all evil. To take away the poison of sin and death. From humanity, And those things have already happened. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that all that he did has already been granted to you. In full, you have been made one with him. And now all that God promises in his word is yours. Therefore, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the dead Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put God to the test and put him to the proof that they had seen his work. For 40 years, he says, I loathe that generation and said, there are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But for you, God's children, that rest still remains. The rest that God has promised, the rest that Jesus enjoyed on our behalf, and has prepared for us an eternal rest eternal rest from all that afflicts us in this life all that afflicts us because of our sin because of the frailty of our flesh because of the temptations and dangers of the world death itself must give way so that we might rest in a better rest than the one afforded to us by our grave a rest in the care of God in eternal life not a land flowing with milk and honey 
but new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Those have been granted to you. And as God fed his people with manna in the wilderness and water in the rock, he feeds you with, the, with food and drink better than the food and drink of angels, with the flesh and blood of his son, Jesus Christ, so that you might not forget and so that you might not perish in the way. God's grace, undeserved, unmerited, unearned, is ours. It is ours in Jesus Christ. It is ours in full measure. And it will accomplish that which God wishes it to accomplish, which is your eternal salvation. Those promises are yours. Today, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs>